Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Anna, for play, praying and um, playing. And thank you for all those who have been praying. And um, allow me to open our time in prayer as well. Okay. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the immense value that you have placed on your word and for the scriptures, Lord, that we profit from as they train us in righteousness and for these scriptures that are a light unto our path if we, as we have sung. And Father, they're a light unto our path of growing in our relationship with you. So we, we would ask that that would occur this morning, Lord. I would ask that you would help us to see what it is that you have to show us through your servant Peter, whose words you have chosen to preserve so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, it's in your Son's name that we pray and we ask these things. Amen. So, I'd like us to begin by reading our passage. We're in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours, and, and they're increasing, They do not make you useless nor unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. I have to ask what your first thoughts are as you hear this scripture passage. Do they go something like this? These were my thoughts. Wow, looks like I really got my work cut out for me here. I mean, twice I read that I have to apply our diligence, or as the NIV puts, I have to make every effort. Well, wait a minute, I'm I'm a Christian, a a Christ in you one. Christ has done it all, right? I mean, why is it about my effort and my diligence anyway? And how can I even begin to supply goodness and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and unconditional love to my life? Oh, and, and by the way, just getting them into my life isn't sufficient. No, somehow I then have to get them to continually increase. And if I don't do that that I end up getting diagnosed with spiritual nearsightedness, uh, maybe even blindness, with the result of being totally ineffective and unproductive in my Christian life. So what is it that keeps Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11, through 11, from being a do-it-yourself program of character development and spiritual growth? <laughs> and what is it about this passage that keeps it impossible <laughs> from being able to apply? Well, very simply, there is an answer, and it's the very first words of Second Peter 1.5. For this very reason, or your version might have in view of this. 
These words are crucial because they give us a beep, 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 context alert, context alert. Let's check out what it is, what's close to our passage. They prompt us to look nearby. Fortunately, we don't have to go too far to find out the reason why we are able to make every effort to bring alongside our faith seven qualities that reveal our Christianity. In verses 3 and 4, and I'll be reading from the NIV this time, in verses 3 and 4 we see that His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So without verses 3 and 4, without the context, honestly verses 5 through 11 just don't work. (laughs) But with verses 3 and 4, we see that God has given everything that we need to live the seven qualities of life that are described in our passage. Effort is involved because even though we receive God's nature when we're born again, our inner being remains in this body of flesh which is influenced by sin, and therein lies the conflict, and therein lies our need for effort. 1 Timothy 4.7 in the NIV says, Train yourself to be godly. In the King James it says, Exercise thyself rather unto godliness. And in the New American Standard, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now training, exercise, and discipline take effort. There's no way to get around that. But we're not on our own. No, we get to draw upon God's power, His divine nature, and His promises. Thus, we can make the effort to bring alongside our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, goodness, the first quality listed in verse 5. Unfortunately, there are many people who are very busy making every effort to bring goodness into their life without having a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And I have to admit, it's possible for an unsaved person to do many good things, and even many religious good things. A person can appear to live like Christ on the outside, without having any access to God's divine nature on the inside. They might be really good, actually, at making every effort to try to spiritually clean themselves up by their good works, but it's futile, it's useless because they have no faith that saves. They're wrapped up in the gospel of good works, which is, in reality, no gospel at all. And they might refer to themselves as good, but as hard as they try, they will never save themselves by their version of goodness. Just know that Peter is not writing to these people. Peter's letter is written to Christians. In verse 5, your version might have, make every effort to add to your faith. But literally, it is much better translated, supply in your faith. For Peter, faith is a given. Since he's writing to Christians, he already assumes the existence of their faith, and he's writing to those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. So, if you have not yet come to that place, to that personal faith in Jesus Christ... You're not going to be able to do what Peter talks about in verses 3 through 7. For without Jesus Christ, you do not have everything you need for a godly life. You actually have 
nothing you need for a godly life. There's nothing to supply in your faith because you don't have the faith that gives you access to His great and precious promises. Saving faith is the foundation of the Christian life. And without it, you cannot participate in God's divine nature. And without it, you cannot escape the corruption that is in the world, the sin that is in you. You can read Peter's words over and over and over, but if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have no foundation of faith, you have no gift of eternal life, and the qualities that Peter lists here, including godliness, will be beyond reach. However, to the biblical born-again Christian, Peter is saying to use what God has given you insofar as his promises and his power while making every effort to bring alongside your faith in Jesus Christ seven qualities that serve to make your faith visible. What Peter is doing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11 through 11, is directing us to live out our faith. A couple of months ago, I saw a sign, it was outside a church, and it read, The best vitamin for a believer is B1. That's exactly what Peter is saying to us. To the Christian, he's saying, be who you say you are. Thiamine, or vitamin B1, plays a vital role in the growth and function of various cells, so we need a daily intake of thiamine-rich foods. Peter says that we need a daily intake of goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. It's these qualities that give evidence of our Christian faith. To use an old saying, the proof is in the pudding, and Peter is saying that the proof of God's divine power in our life is in these qualities being visible in our life. So if that's the case, why are these characteristics sometimes invisible? Why do we sometimes stray so far away from participating in God's nature? It's a simple answer. Although God has given us all we need for life and godliness, we choose not to use what it is He has given us. We choose not to make the effort to use what it is that He has given us. The story is told of a Welsh woman living in a remote valley in Wales many, many years ago. This particular lady went to much difficulty and expense to have electricity installed in her home. Since she was the only consumer in the entire area, the installation was quite costly. When it was found in her first billing period that her entire electric consumption for that time period was only one unit, she was asked if the utility installation was really worth it. For her reply... Oh, indeed, yes. You see, I I switch the electricity on every night just long enough so that I can see to light my oil-filled lamps. And then I quickly turn my electric off using whatever light I can get from the lamps to help me see. With almost unlimited light and power at her disposal, she still can spend her time, the time-consuming, of, and really somewhat of a difficult and messy task of trimming those lamps and then lighting those candles. She failed to use the abundant supply of electrical power that was readily available to her. As Christians, I think we have something in common with this lady from Wales. We fail to continually draw upon God's unlimited power as we ignore the fact that it is God who is continually at work in us for his good pleasure. We don't make the effort to cooperate with God. Rather, we we trudge through our Christian life struggling because... 
All of our effort to grow is in our own strength. We fail to share in what I would consider to be the great merger, the union between God's provision and our best effort to use that which he has given us. The it takes two principle. I think Peter wants his readers to know that the spiritual component and the human component work together when it comes to getting each of these seven qualities into our life in ever-increasing measure. So let's take a closer look at Peter's list. Again, starting with the first quality listed, goodness. A good, virtuous person is a decent, respectable, and a moral person, and, and that should characterize our life. But what Peter has in mind here is more than that. The Greek word for goodness is erite, and it actually refers to courage, vigor, and energy. As Peter addresses his concern in this letter for the false teachers, he wants his readers to use whatever energy or courage that might be needed to resist any false teaching that could appeal to the flesh. This first quality refers to moral courage, and moral courage does require some human effort because it involves a choice. It's the decision to do the right thing, regardless. It's the moral courage that it takes to not be conformed to this world. Dwight Moody, he said this, he said, Christians should live in the world, but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, it can sink. We know of too many Christians, unfortunately, who have struggled to stay afloat, but eventually they sunk. They failed in their effort to bring goodness alongside their faith. They failed to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And this thirsting after righteousness includes a hungering for a good, pure Christian life. The type of goodness or moral excellence that Peter lists in 2 Peter 1.5 is not just a merit badge that eventually fades. No, goodness and actually each of these qualities in Peter's list are dynamic, carrying with them the idea of needing to continually increase with no room for compromise. In many parts of the world, there's an animal called an ermine. That's spelled E-R-M-I-N-E. It's a small rodent, well known for its gleaming white fur. It takes excellent, very good care of its fur. It's, it, it grooms itself. It, it doesn't allow anything to get on it. They don't want, it doesn't want it to become dirty or dull. So what hunters do is they take advantage of its commitment to stay clean. The hunters don't need to set any traps for the ermine. What they do is they first find out where it lives. They find its home. Usually it's a small cave or a dead log. And then they take black tar. They take black tar and they put it on the outside of its home and also a little bit inside. Then the hunters call their dogs, which frightens the ermine by their loud barking and chasing. So the ermine runs towards its home, but once finding that their entrance and their interior was covered with dirty black tar, it would not take shelter. Rather, it would decide to turn and face the dogs and its hunters, regardless of the consequences. For the ermine, its purity was far more important and valuable than its own life. I think this begs the question, how morally brave, how morally excellent 
And how morally courageous are we? Psalm 107 verse 9 states that God satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. This is actually a promise that God satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. Can we draw upon this promise, on God's promise, and participate in God's divine nature as we make every effort to supply this goodness, this moral courage and moral excellence alongside our faith? Now, the next quality that Peter lists in verse 5 is knowledge. And this is not the trivial pursuit, help me win at jeopardy kind of knowledge. What Peter is referencing here is the knowledge that's meant for growth and development in the Christian life. Gnostics, or false teachers, they claim to impart knowledge by means of their secret rituals. In stark contrast, the knowledge that's available to the believer is based on what God has revealed openly about himself in his written word. David did not write in Psalm 19 that the word of God helps you to win Bible trivia contests. But David did write in Psalm 19 that the word of God makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, and it enlightens the eyes and endures forever. Time in the word of God is so worth our best effort. Making the effort to hear, read, study, memorize, and meditate on God's word enables us to see what God has given us in his very great and precious promises and in his Son. It's in God's word through the Holy Spirit that we gain spiritual insight. Bringing that spiritual insight alongside our faith in Jesus Christ enables us to make the effort to make courageous moral decisions. And God wants us to know that there's no moral decision that is not addressed in Scripture. And making courageous moral decisions based on this knowledge of Christ and his word will keep us from stumbling. Next in verse 6 is self-control. Proverbs 25:28 states, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Without self-control, we have no protection. We have no protection against that anger which we know can well up inside us. Without self-control, we have no protection from the immorality that is so prevalent in our world. And without self-control, we have no protection against the false doctrine of the false teachers. Without self-control, our emotions, our ability to reason, and any decision that we may need to make in the face of temptation is impacted. We see self-control in action in a number of ways. Uh, We see it in action when we realize that portion portion control is actually a help and not a hindrance when it comes to eating. Uh, We see self-control in the spouse who continues to love and or respect their spouse even when disappointed and hurt. We see self-control in the person who can control his frustration while driving in traffic with those who seem to be out of control. Self-control is the person who doesn't need to be the center of attention, but who can defer to others. Self-control is lived out in the person who's not influenced by peer pressure to do the wrong thing, but being controlled by the Holy Spirit does what it is that God has given him to do. In the possession of our faith, 
We need to live and even minister self-control to others. Peter's next reference quality in verse 6 is translated in the Greek as endurance or perseverance. It's described as holding fast to a goal in the face of opposition. It's not giving in and it's not giving up. James 1.2 tells us to count on all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The word endurance in James 1.2 is the same word that's being used in our passage. We have to persevere or endure in the trials of living in a sin-fallen world. We know that we battle with things that break down, including our own bodies. Romans 8.19, though, tells us that the world itself longs for redemption. But until that happens, we persevere. By demonstrating endurance, we press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's Philippians 3.14. Participating in his divine nature, the unchangeableness of God and his faithfulness is why we can grow in the quality of perseverance. In Psalm 73, Psalm 73, Asaph, Asaph was a Levite worship director back in the day of King David. And he focuses on the enduring nature of his relationship with God. Beginning in Psalm 73, verse 23, Asaph says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Knowing this, knowing that he is continually with us and that he's taken hold of our right hand and that he will guide us, knowing that although our flesh and our heart may fail, God is still the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Knowing that this scripture is part of the everything that we need for life and godliness, this is why we can make every effort to bring alongside our faith endurance. Our next quality is godliness, but staying in Psalm 73, verse 25, like Asaph, can we say to the Lord, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Asaph's singular focus on desiring nothing but God, serves to turn our attention to godliness, the fifth quality in Peter's list. How do you define godliness? Well, I know we can describe someone as a godly man, a godly woman, a godly boy, a godly girl, but, but it, honestly, it's a hard, hard word to define. Abe has shared the story of a man who was known to live on godly street because he left a mark on his neighborhood that could only be described as godly. I'll go to the Greek. In the original Greek, godliness means to worship well or right worship. It describes the one who is right in his relationship with God and with his fellow man. It's that quality that makes a person distinctive. The godly person lives above the passions and the pressures that can easily control life. A godly person seeks to do the will of God and has a dependence on God that reveals itself in a devoted life. This was Enoch. 
Genesis 5 tells us that Enoch, the father of Methuselah, walked with God. And in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we read that Enoch pleased God. Enoch was one who spent time with God. There's a biblical commentator, his name's Peter Lang, and he said this about godliness. It's the life in which the consideration of God controls the whole life, in which God is held in supreme honor, whereby his approval is sought, and the doing of which constitutes its own happiness. That's a lot there, but let's try to just ask this question. Does this describe our walk with God? Let's try this. Do we contemplate God in his infinite majesty? Do we think like that? Do we contemplate God in his power, in his holiness? And then, as we dwell upon the riches of God's mercy and grace poured out at Calvary, is our heart captivated by this one who could love us so much? Godliness as is true for each of these qualities, is to be an ever-increasing quality. So, are we satisfied with God alone, yet always wanting to grow in our relationship with Him? Do we really understand that godliness is intensely practical? That it's practical in our everyday life. It's an awareness that we need to do what God wants us to do. We need to be who He wants us to be. The godly person consistently makes the right choices that contribute to growth in his relationship with God. The godly person may not take an easy path just to avoid pain or trial. He or she does what is right because it's the will of God. The God with whom he or she spends time. Now the next quality is brotherly kindness or love of the brethren. And this means treating one another As children of the same father, it speaks of kindness and generosity, which should be easy for us as we all share in the same inheritance. Brotherly kindness translates from the Greek Philadelphian. I think you're probably aware of that. It's a fervent practical caring for others. As brothers and sisters in the Lord, we share here at the chapel in the Lord's Supper. We share in the family Bible hour time together. We pray together. We help one another with a need and we share a meal together, which we're about to do. We have one-to-one encouragement time with one another. I think we would agree that we're, we're all thankful for the love of the brethren that we both give and receive here at the chapel. And the final quality in Peter's list is an additional kind of love. The kind of love that's spoken of in Second Peter 1.7 is agape love. Agape love means that we want the highest good of the one loved. It's, the, it's unconditional with no strings attached. Sadly, what we call love is love because it's something that benefits us. We use the person. We don't love them. We want to know what we can get from them. Naturally speaking, we only love others if they have something that benefits us. But that's not agape love. Agape love is selfless. It's the love that gives of itself freely and without expecting anything in return. Agape love is not possessive. It doesn't seek to control or to manipulate others. It's unconditional because it doesn't depend on what a person may have done to you in the past. This is especially applicable 
if forgiveness is needed when someone has hurt you badly. Being able to forgive people who have hurt you deeply can only be described as agape love. Bringing this unconditional love alongside your faith can remove the bitterness that you might be feeling on your path to forgiveness. Agape love, very importantly, also enables us to love the sinner as God loves him. And the best way we can demonstrate agape love to a sinner is to share the gospel. Verse 8 tells us, If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, Peter's listed qualities taken as a whole here are gifts that enable us to be fruitful. And God's gifts always produce fruit. And when fruit is cared for consistently, it produces more fruit. So verse 8 goes on to tell us, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this knowledge of Christ is, is much more than just knowing about Jesus. Peter is talking about growing in a very personal kind of knowledge of Christ. Who was the most virtuous, morally excellent person? Who was the most knowledgeable, self-controlled, patient, or enduring person? The most godly, kind, and loving person. Obviously, the qualities that Peter listed here all personal qualities of Jesus Christ. These qualities are working in harmony with one another. An effective and productive Christian life is found in the consistent pursuit of knowing Jesus. Billy Graham told about the conversion of H.C. Morrison. He was the founder of Asbury Theological Seminary. I think it's in Wilmore, Kentucky. He said that Morrison, a farm worker at the time, was plowing in a field one day when he saw an old Methodist preacher coming by on his horse. Morrison knew the elderly gentleman to be a gracious, godly man. As he watched this old saint go by, a great sense of conviction of sin came over him, and he dropped to his knees. There in his field, alone, he gave his life to God. When he concluded the story, Billy Graham prayed, Oh God, make me a holy man. Holiness or godliness can only happen as we cooperate with God and we bring godliness and the other six qualities alongside our faith. Only then will we have the fruit that remains. But this begs the question, how does Peter describe the person who chooses not to make every effort to bring these qualities alongside their faith? Verse 9, But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Here, Peter's describing a spiritual vision problem. It's nearsightedness. The Christian with this diagnosis can only focus on things directly in front of him, things of this earth. He has a blurry view at best of anything considered to be spiritual, as he cannot see beyond himself. And his nearsightedness Bordering on blindness has gotten so bad that he has no recollection of God forgiving his sins, which makes him an easy target for false teachers. Peter wants to correct his spiritual eye disease, and his treatment plan is found in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome 
into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter really doesn't want Christians stumbling over false teachers or not being sure of their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So in verse 10, he gets the attention of his readers with another context reminder. It's the word, therefore. In this immediate context, Peter's instructing Christians to confirm their calling and election by living verses 5 through 7. So Peter is pointing out that calling and election go together. We don't preach election to unsaved people. We preach the gospel. But then God uses that gospel to call sinners to repentance. And then those sinners discover that they were chosen by God. By repeating the phrase, make every, make every effort, he's letting his readers know that election is no excuse for not trying in the Christian life. Divine election must never be an excuse for laziness. While it's true that it is God who works in us for his good pleasure, again, the great merger, the spiritual and the human components of spiritual growth working together, verse 11 reminds us that the Christian who is using everything needed for life and godliness while living this seven-quality-filled life can look forward to an abundant entrance into the eternal kingdom. The Greeks used this phrase, abundant entrance, to describe the triumphant and victorious welcome that was given to Olympic winners when they returned home. According to our passage, living these qualities alongside your faith enables you to be effective and fruitful. It keeps you from stumbling and provides an abundant welcome into the eternal kingdom. But, for the believer described in verse 9... The one who has a foundation of faith in Jesus Christ, but yet lacks these qualities. The one who's blind or short-sighted. Well, a little different story, right? He won't be effective. He or she won't be effective and productive. He or she will stumble. And this, this is the tough one. Somehow forfeit, not heaven, but that abundant welcome into the eternal kingdom. Again, it's very important here to remember that Peter is addressing believers, men and women who are saved by faith in Christ and who will spend eternity with God. The believer in verse 8 and the believer in verse 9 both go to heaven. There's no doubt that Christ has done everything to keep us saved. So I have to admit here that I, I don't know exactly how that loss of an abundant welcome Works. It may have something to do with the judgment seat of Christ, who's believe, where believers are rewarded based on how faithfully they serve Christ. But, but if either way, if you're concerned that you might fall into this verse nine category, that you're lacking these qualities, you're not seeing them ever increasing measure in your life, because you're not drawing upon everything that you need for life and godliness. Well, you can do something about it. Consider the words of the Lord in John 12:24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So there you have it. Bearing fruit occurs when we die to ourselves and we turn away from anything or anyone that would hinder our making every effort to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Inherent in that statement is that he must be our Lord. We opened our remembrance meeting this morning singing, He is Lord. We have to let Christ be more than a name on our lips. 
He needs to be the Lord of our life. When it comes to a believer, we need to be one. We need to be who we say we are. So as we come to the end of our message, I'd like us to consider Peter. We spent the majority of our time this morning discussing the seven qualities that Peter has listed for his readers. The spiritual characteristics that ought to be seen in a believer's life. Question, how did Peter do in so far as displaying these qualities? The very qualities that give evidence of our Christianity. Well, the man who wrote those inspiring words, the man who exhorted us on to such strength of character, he didn't always measure up. I mean, where was his moral, moral courage? Where was his goodness, his virtue, when the rooster crowed the first, second, and third time? The man who tells us that we should be alert and pray. He fell asleep while Jesus was in significant agony and had been asked to pray by our Lord. Where was his perseverance then? And the man who so boldly tells us, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Well, Peter lopped off the soldier Malchus's ear in the garden. Where was his self-control then? And where was his knowledge of Christ and brotherly kindness when he was lobbying for the position of being first in the kingdom? Now I share this not to beat up on Peter, not to disparage him, but I share this to give us hope. This man Peter, who was so impulsive and immature, he grew spiritually and he ministered effectively and productively. The Peter that we read about in the four Gospels, the Peter with all his issues, became the Peter who we read about in the book of Acts. The one who wrote the two epistles that we've been studying. It took God's provision and Peter's effort, but the great merger took place in Peter's life and God transformed him. Peter made every effort to, in the possession of his faith, minister the qualities of goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and unconditional love. And the same Holy Spirit who worked this transformation in Peter's life is actively at work transforming those of us who have placed their faith in Christ. As a believer, we have to ask ourselves if we'll make every effort to bring along or alongside our faith and even supply in our faith these qualities in ever-increasing measure. Again, knowing that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to do just that. As a missionary to Africa, and he stated that one of the greatest prayers he's ever heard came from a native African woman who had just recently received Christ as her Savior. This was her prayer. O oh, great chief, light a fire in my heart so I can see to sweep the rubbish out of thy dwelling place. No doubt this woman meant business for God. May the same be true of us. God has given us everything we need. Let's choose to use that which he has provided. Let's pray, please. Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would help us to be diligent in our Christian walk, our, our walk with you, not relying on our own abilities, but trusting in your many precious promises and participating in your divine nature, knowing that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And Father, we're about to share a meal together. We're grateful for that, that we can express brotherly kindness one to another. And we ask that you would bless this food, and we're just grateful that we can partake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.